Can you work your way into heaven? Can you work your way into heaven? No. Amen. Nearly 500 years ago, the answer wasn't so resounding. It seemed like most of the world lived under the dark assumption that to make your way into heaven, to earn God's favor, was a recurring round of works done by you. A never-ending payment system to spring the soul of your loved one from purgatory up to the realms of heaven. Nearly everybody everywhere thought that way. The gospel had been grounded under the dirt and the filth of greed and corruption. The church taught that salvation could be bought, and the people spent all their time and all their money trying to work their way into heaven. Some were disgruntled, some were knowing that something was wrong with this, but no one could quite put a finger on it or had the audacity to stand up to the church. But you know, the Lord often uses small things and small people in big ways. And so about 504 years ago, on today, October 31st, a a German monk named Martin Luther simply wanted to call Rome to debate, to talk about from the Bible where they got such teachings. He nailed on the door of the church in Wittenberg 95 theses, calling Rome to respond. He thought he'd continue being a good Catholic. He just wanted to clarify some things. 504 years later, Reformation Day transformed the way the world worships Christ. Understanding that there's no works, no amount of money, nothing we can do to work our way into heaven. Jesus Christ has paid it all for us. But all to him we owe. And so while we don't work for our salvation, having been saved by Christ, we work out our salvation. That's what we'll talk about this morning as we study the book of 1 Timothy chapter 4. And so if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4? And this morning we'll look at verses 6 through 16 together. 1 Timothy 1 chapter 4 verses 6 to 16. The word of God says this, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths, but rather train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, Godliness is a value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe command and teach these things. 
Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now, in the previous passage we looked at last week, we, we saw that the false teachers had something to say. They were saying that true godliness could be gained by asceticism, by working hard to keep away from certain things. They were forbidding marriage and encouraging abstinence from certain foods. They claimed that you could be clean by curbing the desires of your body. Paul said that by following their teachings, the result wasn't that many became more godly, but that they instead turned away from God. They departed from the faith. Well then, how do people stay in the faith? What's involved if you're not to depart? You might think that it would be the total opposite of what the false teachers were saying. If they were saying you needed to work hard to watch your body, to stay away from certain things to be more godly, but Paul said that's not what makes you more godly, then the thing you, you might think he would encourage is for you to just chill, relax, just lay back and indulge in whatever comes your way. No effort required. Just let go and let God. But that's not what we see here. I mean, did you notice as we read through that passage how many commands there were? How many imperatives we saw? In these 11 verses, Paul gives 12 charges for Timothy to either do or not do. Have nothing to do with silly myths. Train yourself for godliness. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise your youth. Set the believers an example. Devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them. Keep a close watch on yourself and teaching. Persist in this. You might be thinking to yourself, sheesh, all these commands, where's grace? Well, grace is there. Underlying all these commands. You see, the grace of God that saves us from our sins drives us to go hard after God in our sanctification. In this process to look more and more and more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. To reflect his holiness, his godliness in our lives. Yes, we are saved by grace apart from works, but we are saved by grace for good works. And so Paul here commends a laboring to grow in godliness. And so here's what I think is his main point in this passage. 
the main point of the sermon. Growth in godliness doesn't happen by default. Rather, God's people must work towards it as God works in them. Growth in godliness doesn't happen by default. Rather, God's people must work towards it as God works in them. In encouraging this growth, Paul gives Timothy, and by extension us, two main charges that I think kind of summarize all these individual charges. So two points to the sermon. How do you grow as a Christian and keep from departing from the faith? Number one, train for godliness. We see that in verses 6 through 11. And number two, watch your life and doctrine. We see that in verses 12 through 16. Number one, train for godliness. And number two, watch your life and doctrine. Point number one, train for godliness. And this, as always, will probably be the longest point. Notice just the emphasis here on on strenuous spiritual effort that we see in these first few verses. Paul tells Timothy in verse 6, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. What are these things that Timothy is to put forward? Well, most immediately, I think, is the instruction that Paul just gave regarding enjoying God's good gifts as an act of worshiping and enjoying him and not denying them as if abstaining from them is what made you righteous. Paul wanted Timothy to counter the false teacher's erroneous teaching with what the Bible actually says. Remember, that's why Paul left Timothy in Ephesus to correct false teaching. He said back in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which only promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. But these false teachers weren't just to be directly taught. The church which was being influenced by their teaching, needed to be taught as well. And so Paul here encourages Timothy in that work, that hard work of standing against false doctrine and standing on the Bible. Timothy, if you keep doing this, if you keep putting the truth before the brothers and sisters, before the household of God, you will be a good servant of Christ. And if we're being honest, we're like, well, what else? I mean, that's my payoff? Being a good servant? But as we talked about in the passage on deacons, being acknowledged as a servant of God, a good servant is a lofty commendation. There is no better achievement, no grander title. Not being called a doctor or a scholar, a president or a king. Nothing better than being called a good servant of Christ Jesus. And notice what will earn Timothy that title. It won't be one historic act. 
It won't be one extraordinary milestone, but the ongoing faithful teaching of God's people. The continuing to day after day, week after week, put God's word before them. Paul is calling Timothy to what God is calling all of us to. Ordinary faithfulness. People may never formally recognize it. People may never commend you for it. But hear God's commendation. That is the work of a good servant. And as Timothy goes about that work, Paul says that he is being trained in the words of the faith and the good doctrine that he's followed. That word trained there means to be educated in, nourished by. While Timothy is tasked with teaching others, there's a payoff. He himself is being taught. While he's feeding others, he himself is being fed. Being fed what? The words of faith. The words of scripture and the theology, the doctrines, the teachings that flow from it. The doctrines like the doctrine of all creation as good that Paul just elaborated on. As Timothy teaches others, he himself is being further trained and instructed. You might know that from experience yourself. I mean, when you witness to somebody, when, when you share the gospel, don't you often find that, that yes, while you're trying to, to lay out the truth of the gospel and, and call other people to, to repent and believe, that you yourself are being built up as you share it? You find that while you're calling them to believe, that you more and more are believing in Christ's work for you and for your salvation. Amen. I think the same thing happens when we're encouraging another brother and sister in the faith or, or giving counsel. While you're sharing God's word with them and calling them to conform their thoughts and their actions to the word, you find your thoughts and your actions being conformed to the word. While you're calling them to delight in the word, you yourself are delighting in the word. So I want to encourage you to disciple one another, even if you feel like you need to be discipled, even if you feel like you need to grow more spiritually. Because often what happens is that the Lord uses your simple desire and faithfulness to want to help and train others in the word to help and train you in the word. Don't wait until you feel sufficient to share the gospel or to share gospel doctrine with others. Rely on the sufficiency of the Bible and walk alongside others for their growth. And watch how God uses it for your growth. You are being trained, fed, even as you seek to train and feed. So look around right now. Take some time, look around, it's okay, right? Think about maybe an action step for you this week. Maybe right now, just jot down one or two names that you might reach out to after service today or during the week to see how you might help each other grow in the faith how you might help each other be trained and nourished in God's word. From this encouragement to, to keep on teaching God's word and being nourished in it, Paul commands Timothy negatively 
what he must not give himself to, what he must not give his attention to, the irreverent myths that the false teachers were propagating, have nothing to do with them, Paul says. Literally, reject them. Again, we noted earlier from chapter 1 that the false teachers were going on and on about genealogies and myths, tall tales from the past, fables of mystical figures and events and their supposed impact on the present. The false teachers probably presented these myths, and the people who were believing them probably viewed them as deep, profound, impactful, insightful. But look at how Paul labels them. Silly, trivial, stupid. I mean, that's how we should view all untruths, especially when we can be nourished in the truth of God's word. By comparison, then, anything that's false and sets itself up against the Bible must be considered silly and not worthy of our time, have nothing to do with it. And we need that charge constantly, don't we? Because we're ever so tempted to give our time to investigating, following up on the myth-like things, untrue things. That's what's juicy, what tickles our curiosity. Perhaps you know the experience. You, you on YouTube, and those recommended videos show up on your page. They don't have anything to do with what you went there to look for, but they're appealing with their attention-grabbing titles. What really happened in, what the Bible really says about, the real truth behind. And they be having millions of views, and yours becomes another one of them. And then from that video, it leads you to another video, another myth, and another, and another. And before you know it, you spent hours researching and investigating things that are speculative at best largely untrue and soul-damaging at worst. Friends, save yourself time and spare your souls by following Paul's words here. Reject all of them. Reject the temptation to give yourself to following myths and things that don't really matter. Instead, or rather, Paul says, here's what you should spend yourself doing. Training yourself for godliness. This word train here in verse 7 is different from the one translated train in in, in verse 6. The Greek word behind this train is gymnazo. It's where we get the English word gymnasium. But when you think of gymnasium, don't think of your middle school gymnasium or your middle school gym class where just dressing for class earns you a grade. Now think of the Olympic gymnasium with Simone Biles and them girls doing flips and twists and twirls, doing things with the human body you didn't think was possible. And think of all the hard work, preparation, countless hours of dedication that that must take. That's the idea of this training here, of gymnazo. It's strenuous effort. 
And here, Paul says that strenuous effort is for growth in godliness. Again, notice it's not train, work hard for salvation. Timothy is already saved, already a Christian. But as a Christian, he is to grow as one through discipline, to train for godliness. Paul Tripp gives a good definition of godliness. He says, godliness is a God-honoring life between the time we come to Jesus and the time we go home to him. It's living in a godly way in the here and now. And it doesn't just happen automatically. It takes work. Exercise, planning, commitment, discipline over a long time. You know, I think some of us get too easily frustrated or discouraged because we tend to think that after our salvation, that our struggles with sin will just dissipate, that our ability to do the right thing, to obey God's word and live according to it will be easy. We get taken aback. But after being a Christian for a year, or five years, or 10 years, or for 20 or 30 years, that the path to personal holiness hasn't gotten any easier. We thought that after salvation, we could set our hearts on cruise control and coast into heaven. But where did we get that idea? The Bible certainly never describes the Christian life that way. The Bible describes the Christian life as a war, as a race, things you need to be alert for and trained for. And even more than that, if we just look back and examine our own lives before becoming Christians, what did they consist of? Training. Only then it was for the purpose of ungodliness. With every click of the mouse on some obscene site, every flick of the button on the remote to some obscene channel, we trained our eyes to look at filth. With every word we cursed, every gossip we murmured, every lie we told, we trained our mouths to speak evil. With every body we touched, not our spouses. Every item we stole that didn't belong to us. We trained our hands to take what's forbidden to us. With every thought we lingered on of our own glory and greatness. Everything we lusted after and daydreamed about. We trained our hearts to treasure self and stuff more than God. We worked hard, trained hard to build up the habits and the instincts and the actions that marked our ungodly lives. And we all deserve to die and go to hell for it, for this active and planned and persistent rebellion against God. But God has shown us mercy. He did not send us to hell. He sent us his son to die for us in our place for our sins. He suffered and died so that we might live. He, bur- he was buried and rose from the grave showing that his sacrifice Amen. was sufficient payment for sinners like us. 
And through turning from sin and trusting in him, we are saved. But once saved, what are we to do? Work hard and train hard to live a life that pleases him. It's a problem, saints. If you don't go as hard for the Lord as you went as hard for the world, right? Don't let the world outdo your effort for the Lord, right? Train, work, not to earn your salvation, but because you have salvation to show how great a salvation that is. And Paul was living at a time in the Greco-Roman world where the games were a big part of culture and life. And so he knew the dedication of an athlete training to compete for a prize. It filled his mind as he wrote to his young pupil, Timothy, encouraging him to train for a prize, for godliness. And what's that training entail? Well, Paul doesn't lay out all the specifics here, but we can surmise from what Paul says later in this chapter and what the Bible says elsewhere, what spiritual training involves. For one, this spiritual training involves having a healthy diet, not feasting on the junk food of falsehoods, but on God's word. The prophet Jeremiah said he ate God's words and they were a delight to him. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And Paul said up in verse 6 to be trained by the words of faith. Feast on the scriptures. Make time to read and study them. Not randomly, but routinely. Wake early if you need be to, to study God's word. Read some verses while you're brushing your teeth. Listen to the Bible on your drive to work or to take the kids to school. Start small. Nobody, at least in their right mind, gets on the treadmill after a long layoff and jacks the speed and the incline all the way up. (laughs) Go slow. A few verses are better than no verses. Five minutes is better than no minutes. Daily and steadily work the Bible into your workout regimen for godliness. Prayer is part of the personal discipline, training needed for godliness. We have 24-7 access, not merely to a world-class gym with a personal trainer, but to the throne room of heaven with a personal God. Talk to your heavenly Father. Daily thank him for his saving and sustaining grace. Ask him to strengthen you and to deliver you from temptation and through trials. Pray for opportunities to be a good ambassador for him. Pray for other brothers and sisters here to to fight sin and to live holy lives. Make it a habit not to get out the bed in the morning without praying. Not to enjoy a meal without praying. For every time you look at your phone, consider lifting up a prayer. See how much praying you'll do in a day. Gathering with God's people is an act of training for godliness. The Lord uses corporate worship to build us up. So do not neglect to meet together. When you wake up on Sunday and you're tired, 
come to church. Amen. When it's raining and your mood is melancholy, come to church. Amen. When you're struggling in sin and feeling unworthy, come to church. Amen. This is not a place for perfect people. This is a gathering of imperfect people come together to worship a perfect Savior. Amen. And he is present here with us to help us. Amen. So come to church. Amen. And brothers and sisters, fight the temptation of spiritual apathy. That is from the devil. Amen. He does not want you to, to live a godly life. And so notice that when you're spiritually struggling, how the devil, along with your flesh, conspires to keep you away from God's word, Amen. away from prayer, away from God's people. The answer to spiritual dryness or spiritual struggle is never less God, Amen. but more God. Amen. If you're struggling to lose weight, spending less time working out won't help you. Amen. More time will. So spend more time in corporate worship. Not in a legalistic desire to earn God's favor. In Christ, you already have God's favor. Amen. But as a worshipful response to Christ, to God, for his favor, for his grace, and a desire to be more like him. Train yourself to grow in godliness. Set and keep some spiritual routines for your spiritual good. And here's why for the long-lasting value it brings. Look at verses 8 and 9. Paul says, For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. And bodily training, discipline, is, is not pointless. It pays off. And Paul does not have a negative view of the body, a negative view of things in this life. Physical exercise is fine, Paul says. Eating right and working out have their benefits. There's no doubt about that. But their benefits don't carry over. And so expending all your time, all your energy, all your money trying to improve a perishing thing, your body, while neglecting your soul and the growth in godliness is not a wise investment. For godliness is of eternal value. It holds promise both for this present life and for the one to come. A godly life now has temporal benefits. It, it, it blesses others. It bears fruit now in many ways. I mean, think of the ways our church is blessed by godly brothers and sisters and taking time to serve and care for us. Think of the ways that godly parents or grandparents have left a spiritual legacy in your life. But not only is there a temporal, but an eternal value in a godly life. The reality is that this life is not all there is. For the Christian, there is another, a better life. And the life lived now is a down payment on that one later. 
This spiritual training now will pay off when we see our great God and King, Jesus Christ, face to face. But without holiness, no one will see him. But we want to see him. And we want to stand before him unashamed. And we want him to welcome us into his eternal kingdom and eternally holy place. And we want to be happy there. And so we train now for then. So that the glory and the beauty and the holiness of Jesus won't be strange to us. Because we've imaged some of it now in our lives. Growing in holiness. So that heaven won't be dour to us. Because we've pursued holiness and godliness now and delight in it. And believing that there's a better life ahead, and there is, should shape how we behave now. There's no lazy limping, no twiddling our thumbs, no sitting stagnant. As King Jesus stands on the other side of this life, his arms open, welcoming us to cross the finish line. We want to run this race hard with our eyes and our hearts set on him. Amen. Doing whatever it takes, removing any obstacle, jumping over any burden in order to see him. Amen. And Paul says as much in verse 10. He says, to this end, we toil and strive. Work hard, expend maximum effort because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. We have our hope set on God. It's not an uncertainty that we might see him, but a certain expectation that we will. And so we toil trained to meet our living God, our Savior. And just a note here, when, when Paul says here, Savior of all people, he's not teaching a kind of universalism, right? That everyone is saved. The Bible clearly teaches otherwise. The scriptures tell us that many will perish. Few will be saved. But as we saw in, in chapter 2, Savior of all people means Savior of all kinds of people. And that word especially there, which is translated, uh, is, is, which is, uh, that word is translated especially there, is better translated namely, or that is. Right? It just kind of clarifies or describes the people uh, who are being saved by Jesus. Uh, namely, those who are believers. Right? God is Savior of all kinds of people, that is, those who believe. They are the ones who know God as Savior and can confidently set their hope on Him and who pursue godliness in Him. The scriptures always tie salvation to belief, to those who believe. And those who believe demonstrate that belief by living godly lives now, Amen. right? By living lives of holiness. Amen. And they will not be disappointed later. Training will pay off when our efforts to grow in godliness culminate in experiencing eternal rest in God's presence with glorified bodies that then will naturally live to God's glory. Amen. But for now, train hard for then. Amen. That instruction is for Timothy and for us. 
As Paul ends verse 11 with the charge for Timothy to command and teach these things. It bookends verse 6 where, where he instructed Timothy to put these things before the brothers. You train and tell others to train for godliness. Amen. But training is worth nothing if we don't put it into practice. Amen. A boxer or a team can ruin all the work they've done in training camp if they don't showcase it in the ring or on the court. And so can a Christian if it doesn't show up in his life. And so Paul warns Timothy and us in verses 12 through 16 to watch your life and doctrine. Amen. Point number two, watch your life and doctrine. And Paul has just told Timothy to, to train for godliness and to command others to train as well. And now he instructs Timothy to be an exemplary model of what he's calling others to do. Amen. But he understands some possible pushback to Timothy because of his age. His youthfulness and relative inexperience may serve as reasons for people to ignore him. But Paul says to live in such a way that that won't be possible. He says in verse 12, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. This is a favorite passage for parents and youth ministry ministers, calling our young people to models of godliness to others. Well, that's a fine way to use this verse. But we need to recognize that Timothy wasn't a teenager. Many believe he was in his mid-30s when Paul wrote this letter to him. In the first century, someone up to the age of 40 was still considered young. So take that, young people. So just think of one, of one of our favorite parables, right, of, of Jesus and the rich young ruler. The word used for young there is not a child, but probably a man in his 20s or 30s. In any case, Timothy, by all standards in Roman society, was a youth. A youth charged with going to correct errant doctrine in a church where his opponents and where most of the members were most likely all older than him. And the age gap might tempt them to tune Timothy out. Amen. What's he know about living a godly life? Paul says, show them. All right. Set the believers an example. Yeah. I think we see here the need to have a consistent witness in both our words and our actions. Amen. The Bible doesn't play that game we play with our kids. Do as I say, not as I do. No, you first do as you say, which then gives credence and weight and legitimacy to what you tell others to do. Now, the Bible also doesn't play that game that we play of treating youthfulness as an excuse for ungodliness. I mean, we tend to think that in your youth is where you sow your wild oats where immaturity and foolishness and indiscretion get a free pass. They're teenagers. Yeah. Living for the Lord is for later in life. Yeah. But Paul says the opposite here. You can be both young and holy. Amen. Our expectations of our young people are too low. 
We need to raise them to a biblical standard. And so young people, don't waste the years of your youth pursuing the things of this world, the desires of the flesh. Instead, pursue the Lord and let your life be an example to others of what commitment to Jesus looks like. What's stopping you from doing that? What's stopping you from living for the Lord and committing your life to him as a young person? Is it that friends might call you a weirdo? That girls or guys might not be attracted to a holy roller? Well, don't trip off them. They ain't got a heaven or a hell to send you to. You live your life before a God who does and live in a way that honors him. Timothy was to be an example to others in the church in, in five distinct areas. His speech was to be wholesome. His conduct was to be blameless. And no one should be able to stick a charge to him. His love was to be deep, both for the Lord and for his people. His faith was to be strong, trusting in God and his word. And his body and mind were to be pure, restraining his desires for the sake of holiness. And he was to be a model of spiritual maturity, an unexpected candidate, a young man, but filled with God's spirit. Now, how about you? What about you? Would you consider yourself a model of spiritual maturity? Maybe youth isn't what might make you seem like an unexpected candidate. Maybe it's your own feelings of inadequacy. Maybe it's your past. Perhaps it's the present messiness of your life. Maybe you feel like you're not a pastor, a leader in the church, and so not really able to be a spiritual model. But that's just not true. Saints, all of us have a ministry. God has given you a ministry in your home a ministry in the neighborhood he's placed you in, a ministry in the job he's put you at, a ministry in this local body of believers he's grafted you into. And whether you acknowledge it or not, you're setting an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. The question is, what kind of example? Well, saints, by, God, by God's grace and filled with God's spirit, you can set a godly example. You can show folks what it looks like when the Lord takes control of a tongue, of a heart, of a body, of finances, of pursuits and desires. Let your words and your life leave an indelible impression on others. And Paul tells Timothy, don't let anybody look down on you because of your station in life, because of your age. Live in a way that they look up to you and through you look up to God. That's what all our examples are ultimately after. Taking people to Jesus, calling them to follow me as I follow Christ. In verse 13, Paul conveys to Timothy where the constant fuel to live this godly life will come from. 
from God's word. He says, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. The word of God is to be central in Timothy's life and ministry in Ephesus. Notice here the difference between Timothy and others in Ephesus. We read in chapter 1, verse 4, that the false teachers devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Last week, we we saw up in verse 1 of this chapter, in chapter 4, that people were departing from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and demonic teachings. But Timothy is to devote himself to the scriptures, to publicly reading the scriptures. In the gathering of the church, Timothy's ministry was to be marked by opening God's word, reading what the text says, and exhorting and encouraging God's people to follow it. How often was Timothy to do this? Over and over and over. Until I come, Paul says. You don't need a different program to counter false teaching. You don't need something more cutting edge or innovative. Simply open the Bible, explain it, and encourage people to obey it. That sounds a lot like what we do every Sunday, doesn't it? What we've been doing over the last few minutes. The act of publicly reading and preaching God's word. We're only doing on Sunday mornings what Christians have been doing on Sunday mornings for the last 2,000 years. What the Bible commands us to be doing. Preaching the word. How is Timothy supposed to live a godly life before others and instruct them to do so as well? It's by going back to the book time and time again. Which says something about this book, doesn't it? These are not dead words found in an ancient text. These words are living and active. These words come from the living God and give life. God's words gave life to all creation in Genesis chapter 1. God's words gave life to a valley of dry bones in Ezekiel 37. God's words gave life to Lazarus' four-day-old body in the tomb in John 11. And God's words give spiritual life now. Give spiritual life to live a spiritual life. That's why I'm committed to the bulk of my time each week preparing to study and preach God's word. That's why the bulk of our time on Sunday mornings is devoted to the public reading and preaching of God's word. We believe that God speaks through his word and that his words have life transforming effects. I was just freshly reminded of that yesterday morning as several brothers conveyed how the word and applying the word to their marriages and to their family and to their jobs have borne fruit. I was helping them wrestle through all kinds of trials and temptations, and the Lord was being faithful through his word. Our effort to grow in godliness is not a DIY project. We are grounded and guided and gassed up, fueled by God's word. While others drift course to other teaching and other doctrines, other ideas about how to be godly through ascetic practices, 
Timothy is to remain coarse, feeding people the word of God. And he's to remember the calling that he has from God. Paul tells him in verse 14 not to neglect the gift that he has, given by prophecy when the council of elders lay their hands on him. And we don't know specifically what this gift was. It was probably the, the gifting and calling to do ministry. We don't know when it was that these elders laid their hands on him. It seems to be referring to a previous time when Timothy was appointed to formal gospel ministry, and they spoke a prophetic word confirming the Lord's choice of him. In any case, Paul wants Timothy to be reminded of his calling. His calling as a pastor was not simply some subjective feeling. It was affirmed by other elders who publicly testified about God's setting him apart for the work. And God had equipped him for the work by his spirit, had given him all the requisite gifts to faithfully carry out the task. And so now Timothy must trust that what God began, he will complete. Yes, the task in Ephesus is hard, but God has given you all you need for life and godliness. All you need to faithfully minister and showcase godliness. Don't neglect what God has given you. In verses 15 to 16, 16, Paul closes this long list of commands by telling Timothy to continue putting into practice all that he's instructed, to immerse himself in training for godliness, modeling a godly life and teaching others to do so. One purpose is there at the end of verse 15, that all may see your progress. I love that little phrase. It's simple yet profound. We keep at the work of spiritual growth not to reach some climax or peak point. Our aim isn't perfection in this life, but something more chastened, more humble, more attainable. Progress. There's something of an inherent promise here. That if you employ God's means in growing in godliness, that you will grow. Perhaps slowly, but there will be progress. And it will be seen. We've said this before, but that's one of the benefits of staying in the same church over an extended period of time. That people can see your spiritual progress. See you becoming less abrasive in your approach less selfish with your time, less critical with your words, more gracious, more gentle, more sacrificial, more prayerful, more studious. You might not see it because often we're looking for the big leaps and bounds spiritually, the mountaintop experience of spiritual accomplishment. And we get deflated as we look over our lives from week to week and seemingly see that nothing has changed. That's when your brothers and sisters can step in beside you and put some wind in your spiritual sails, pointing out ways they've seen you grow, seen you progress through practicing spiritual disciplines. We should all be progressing spiritually because the only other alternative is regressing spiritually. There is no middle stagnant state. We're either moving forward or backward, advancing in the faith or slowly departing from it. Paul wants Timothy to be a model of progressing 
that others may see and progress in the faith as well. Paul ends in verse 16 by summing up what he's calling Timothy to do. Keep a close watch on yourself in the teaching. Persist in this. Keep at it. Watch your life and doctrine. And the purpose here, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And not in a way of granting salvation. Only God in Christ can do that. But amazingly, God uses people, pastors like Timothy and others of us, to be the means he uses to preserve people's faith to keep them in it, to save them from walking away and to bring them to the fulfillment of their salvation and eternal inheritance in Christ. Timothy's progress in holiness, his watching, his life and doctrine was to have benefits for the entire church. Our lives together are intertwined. You living a godly life helps me to live a godly life as we help each other to heaven. But it's work, hard work. Growing in godliness is labor, toil, a striving. Not to get right with God, but because he's made us right with him to live like it. It's effort, but it's worth it. Because one day soon, we shall see him. And we should be like him as we see him as he is. But until then, we labor together that we all may indeed see him in his glory and be totally transformed. May the Lord give us grace to help one another to that great day. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you for your people. Lord, we thank you for every means you've given us to grow in godliness. We thank you for the salvation that is ours, for the grace that is ours that propels us uh, to go hard after you. Lord, we pray that we would be a people, Lord, who are progressing in the faith steadily, that our lives would be marked by godliness. Lord, we pray that none of us would turn away from Jesus, but Lord, we pray that we would steady together, man and woman, Lord, hold fast to your unchanging hand. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.